Hi, my name is Alex Morgan. And I'm Centibel Pandovsky. And we're going to be recording The Odyssey by Homer. The Iliad and the Odyssey, the two great epic poems by the Greek poet Homer, have long been known and admired throughout the Western world. An epic is a long narrative poem about the exploits of a national or legendary hero. The ancient Greeks recited Homer's epics in public every four years before a great convocation in Athens at the Festival of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and patroness of the city. In time, the study of Homer's epics became the basis of Greek education. From Homer, Greek youths learned how to tell a story, to portray character, to give a speech, and to express the Greek ideals of thought and action. It was also from Homer's suggestions that the great Greek philosophers started their inquiries on the nature of God and man. Later, Roman poets and writers, notably Virgil, modeled their epics on Homer's works, and for centuries European schoolboys read Homer. Great poets, among them Dryden and Pope, translated and paraphrased him. To this day, Homer is read the world over. Who was this poet whose work has delighted so many successive generations? What quality in Homer's work has enabled it to survive? We know few firmly established facts about Homer, the man, except that he lived and wrote. He most probably lived between 850 and 800 BC. Although seven cities claimed him as a native son, we cannot be sure where he was born. We do know that during his lifetime, he was greatly honored as the first poet to combine isolated tales about various heroic exploits into a single coherent whole, thus creating the epic. A persistent tradition tells us that Homer became blind and that after his death, his grave was venerated as a sacred shrine. We know a great deal more about Homer's poetry than we do about the poet. First of all, we know that the Trojan War, the background of Homer's epics, was a definite event and not, as was long supposed, an imaginary happening. About 1200 BC, some 400 years before the composition of the Iliad, the tale of Ilios, or Troy, and the Odyssey, the tale of Odysseus, 100,000 Greeks under the leadership of Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, sailed from Greece to Asia Minor in about 1200 ships to besiege, conquer, and then destroy the ancient city of Troy. The reason for this massive invasion was revenge. Paris, son of Priam, the king of Troy, had carried off Helen, the beautiful wife of Agamemnon's brother. Agamemnon and his brother, Menelaus, persuaded the princes of other Greek tribes and cities to join them in an expedition to recapture Helen and redeem their honor. The siege of Troy lasted for 10 years. During that time, there took place all the usual happenings of a great war. Heroes emerged, Achilles, Odysseus, and Ajax among the Greeks. Hector and Aeneas among the Trojans. Both sides performed acts of valor and cowardice, of candor and guile, of wisdom and stupidity. In hand-to-hand combat, the heroes and villains showed their strength and weakness, and both nations discovered the extent of their courage and patriotism. The experience was never to be forgotten. Shortly after the fall of Troy, poets began to sing or chant their heroes' praise. In time, the numerous versions of the deeds of their heroes prompted the ever-agile Greek mind to ask not only what happened, but why it happened. 
Homer's answer to the question why is a great part of his achievement as a poet. Let us begin with the Iliad, since it not only precedes the Odyssey in time, but serves as its prelude. Homer's account of the Trojan War in the Iliad answered the question why by reducing a mass of conflicting legends to an artistic whole. How did he do this? First, he began his story at a time when the events of the war approached their crisis. The Iliad deals with just 51 days in the 10th and last year of the war, the very moment, so to speak, when the war reached its climax in the final overthrow of Troy. Second, Homer concentrated on one main hero, Achilles, the supreme warrior among the Greeks, and on one main antagonist, Hector, the noblest of the Trojans. Finally, Homer presented his story as a straightforward sequence of events. The Iliad begins with Achilles' angry fight with Agamemnon over a captive slave girl. When Agamemnon refuses to yield, Achilles refuses to fight the war. With Achilles absent from the field, the Trojans take heart and beat to begin back the Greeks. It is only when Hector kills Patroclus, Achilles' best friend, that Achilles, enraged, returns to combat and slays Hector. Though Achilles himself is struck down by a Trojan arrow, his victory demoralizes the Trojans, and, soon after the fall of Hector, Troy itself finally falls. By emphasizing one important hero, concentrating on one continuous action, and selecting an underlying theme for the Iliad, Homer told his audience why the events happened the way they did. The action of the whole poem can be traced to a single cause, the wrath of Achilles. Though Achilles is noble, courageous in battle, a superb orator, and a passionately loyal friend, his intense anger causes him to sulk in his tent, and thereby encourage the Trojans to renew the fight. After the death of Patroclus, Achilles' anger flares again. Furious, he returns to battle and kills Hector at the price of his own life. Thus, all the principal events of the Iliad derive from its very first line. Sing, muse, the wrath of Achilles. Homer's Iliad tells of the great Greek victory at Troy. His Odyssey tells of the return home of the Greek heroes. In this epic, also Homer concentrates on one main hero, Odysseus, who won fame during the Trojan War for his shrewdness and fortitude. It was Odysseus who conceived the bold plan to leave a huge wooden horse filled with Greek warriors outside the gates of Troy. When the Trojans took the horse inside, the Greeks crept out and opened the city gates to their own army. Thus, Odysseus was directly responsible for the fall of Troy. The gods who had sympathized with the Trojans were angry and vowed that Odysseus would have a long and difficult journey home. Thus, Odysseus was tested anew during his difficult homeward journey to rejoin his wife Penelope and his son Telemachus in his native Ithaca. Odysseus had to survive storms, temptations, the anger of the god Poseidon, and the stratagems of his enemies at home. The Iliad shows a hero great even in death. The Odyssey, a hero great in victory and success. Of the two epics, the Odyssey is the more popular. One of its recent translators calls it the best story ever written, and few disagree with him. The Odyssey is not only the story of a national hero, but also the universal story of every human being. Each of us, like Odysseus, 
spends many years trying to reach his own personal land of peace and joy. Like him, we must achieve that land by testing ourselves against all the temptations and obstacles in life. Small wonder that our journey through life is often called our odyssey. The theme of the odyssey, like that of the Iliad, also answers the question, why? Odysseus wins his way home because of his heroic strength, courage, and wisdom. But, as you will see, his journey is by no means an easy one. It is ten long years before he finally reaches his native land, and even then he is forced to put his enemies to the sword before he can live in peace in his own home. While the structure or plot reveals the themes of the Odyssey, the characterization and the incidental description combine to give us a vivid picture of ancient Greek life. In addition, Odysseus, wise and courageous, Penelope, a faithful and patient wife, and Telemachus, a brave and trusting son, offer us lifelike symbols of the virtues most admired by the Greeks. Humbler characters such as Eumaeus, the swineherd, and Euryclea, Penelope's nurse and servant, also contribute to a full and rounded view of the Greek way of life. Nor should we forget that the gods, particularly Zeus, Athene, and Poseidon, are truly characters in this epic poem. They are personifications of human traits raised to their highest power, but never free of human defects. They do not so much rule the universe as they administer the rules of fate. They take sides, as Athene does for Odysseus and as Poseidon does against him. They walk the earth in various disguises and participate in human action. Besides simply enjoying the story, in reading the Odyssey, we should remember that the dangers that Odysseus and his men encounter are mythical exaggerations of the perils and trials of the everyday world. Myths are highly imaginative tales that attempt to explain the mysteries of human life. You have encountered myths in fairy tales, for instance where evil is caused by a wicked witch and good by a fairy godmother, or in American Indian lore, where the mists surrounding a waterfall are explained as the tears of a maiden mourning for her lost warrior. Homer's myths are essentially the same as these. The chief difference is simply this. Homer uses myth to illustrate the character of his epic hero. Thus, the myth of the lotus eaters is used to underline Odysseus's attempt to overcome the temptation of idleness. The myth of the sirens shows how Odysseus uses reason, strength of will, and clever planning to triumph over the pleasures of his senses. In Homer, myth is employed not just to entertain, but to convey a meaningful truth. Myth, in short, is the poet's way of expressing the truth he has seen and felt. The Odyssey by Homer I am Odysseus, great Laertes' son, for cunning plans of every kind known among men, and even to heaven has spread my fame. My native land is Ithaca, a sunbright island, low of shore, which lies far out to the sea and toward the west. Rugged it is, this land of mine, yet breeds a sturdy youth, and I can find no land more sweet to me than this, my native land. But come, for I will tell the many sorrows Zeus sent upon me as I traveled homeward from Troy. The Land of the Lotus Eaters Great Zeus, who guides the clouds, sent forth against our ships a wild north wind, 
a raging tempest, and enshrouded in dark clouds, land and sea. Deep night came rolling from on high. Our ships drove headlong, while their sails were riven, asunder by that gale. But these we stored beneath the decks, still toiling in dread of death, and striving ever, rode on and reached the land where dwell the lotus eaters, men whose food is flowers. And we all here went ashore and drew us water, and by the sides of their swift ships, my men prepared their last meal. And now, when we at last had had our fill of meat and drink, I sent forth men to learn what manner of mankind that live by bread might dwell here. Two I chose to go and sent with them a third, a herald. And these quickly went forth into that land and mingled among the lotus eaters. Never did these men, eaters of the lotus, plan evil to my men, and yet they gave them of the lotus flower and bade them eat of it, and lo, whatever man of them but tasted that blossom strange and honey-sweet, not cared he then to hasten back with tidings to the ships, or even turn homeward any more, but longed to dwell there with the lotus eaters and pluck and eat the lotus blossoms, and think no more of home. But these I brought back to the ships by force. Though they lamented, and I dragged them aboard the hollow ships and bound them beneath the benches. Then I bade the rest, my true companions, hasten aboard the ships, lest one of them taste of the lotus too, and lose all memory of home. So straight away they came aboard, and sat them down in order on the thwarts, and smote the foaming sea with oars. So thence we sailed upon our way sad-hearted, and now we came unto the land where dwell the Cyclopses, arrogant and lawless beings who, with trust in the undying gods, plow not nor the plant with single hands a single plant. Yet crops spring up from them unsown, on fields untended, wheat and barley and vines that bear full clustered grapes to make them wine. The reign of Zeus still brings increase in all. These men have neither meeting place for counsel nor settled laws. They live apart on lofty mountain ridges, dwelling in hollow caverns. Each makes laws for wife and child and gives no heed to any save himself. There lies, facing the Cyclops' land, an island, sheltering the haven's outer side, not near nor yet far out. Thither we sailed, seeking the land. Surely it was some god that gave us guidance thither. Through the dense night, for we could see nothing before our eyes, the mist shut close about the ships. No moon shored forth in heaven, for clouds enclosed it. So no man with his eyes beheld that isle, or saw the long seas rolling against the land till we had beached our well-benched ships. Now we looked after saw not far away the mainland, where dwelt the Cyclopses. And we saw smoke rise, and heard the speech of men, and bleat of sheep and goats. Then came the setting of the sun and darkness, and there we slept beside the breakers. But when the earliest dawn appeared rose-fingered, then I called together my men and spoke to all. Rest here, dear comrades, while they, while with my own ship and my own men I go to learn what men these are 
if wild and cruel and ignorant of right, or kind to every stranger and with hearts that fear the gods. Now when we reached that land that lay hard by, we saw upon it ut- its utmost point a cave close to the sea. High roofed it was, with laurel overhung, and many the flocks of sheep and goats that there found shelter in the night. Around it a courtyard lay, high walled with stones set deep in earth, with lofty pines and high-leaved oaks. Within this lair a man was wont to sleep, a monster who grazed his sheep far off, alone, nor ever mingled with his kind, but lonely dwelt, lawless and evil. And marvelously was he shapen, this monstrous being, not like mortals that live by bread, but like a peak that rising rough with woods stands forth apart from other hills. And I now bade my trusty men to bide close by the ship and guard the ship. But twelve I chose, the best of all, and we set forth. I bore with me a goatskin filled with dark sweet wine, sweet and unmixed, a drink for gods. Who drank that red wine, honey sweet? He took one cup, no more, and it served mingled with water twenty times the measure of the wine. And yet up from the mixing bowl there rose rare scent and sweetness, till no man could find it easy to refrain from drinking of that wine. I filled a great skin with this, and I bore it as I set forth, and bore besides food in a leathern sack. For now my fearless heart foresaw a meeting with a strange man of monstrous might, a savage, scornful of the gods and of man's law. Straight away we reached his cave and entered, but we found not the man within. For far away he herded, while they grazed at pasture, his goodly flock. So on we passed, far into that great cave, and marveled at all we saw within. Here stood crates heaped with cheese, and here were pens crowded with lambs and kids. My men besought me early to carry the cheeses thence, and come again and loose the kids and lambs and drive them in haste to our swift ship, then sail away o'er the salt sea. But this I would not grant, though better far had I but done so. For I hoped to look upon this man, he might give gifts of friendship. But alas, when he appeared, he was to bring my poor men little joy. So there we kindled fire, and of that cheese we made an offering, and ate ourselves thereof, and sat and waited, until at last he entered, driving his flock before him. He bore in dry wood to cook his meal, a load of wondrous weight, and down he flung it. Within the cave, with such a crash, we cowered back with fear, and crouched in the cave's corner. Then he drove into that spacious cave the sheep that he must milk, and left the others, the rams and goats, without, to roam the high-walled court. Then in its place he set the massive rock that closed the doorway of the cave. He raised it lightly aloft, a weight so vast that never two and twenty wagons, four-wheeled and firmly built, might stir it. From where it lay on earth, so great that towering crag was that he set to close his door. Now he sat down and milked his sheep and bleeding goats, that he might sup thereon. And now, when he had labored busily and finished every task, he stayed and kindled up the fire and saw us and asked, 
Strangers, who are you? And whence do you come sailing hither over the sea's wet waves? What errand can bring you hither? Or perchance you wander purposeless, like robbers who rove the seas and venture life to bring to strangers in far lands an evil fortune. So he spoke, and at his words our hearts within us were crushed and broken, for we feared the man's deep voice and monstrous body. Yet I spoke up and answered, saying, We are Achaeans, we come from Troy. We wander blown by every wind over the sea's great gulf, still striving to reach our homes, yet ever go on alien waves, by paths we never have willed to travel. So it pleases Zeus to decree. Now we come hither before your knees to pray you give welcome to your guests and grant us such gifts as guests should have. Respect, almighty one, the gods, for we are suppliants and Zeus avenges the suppliant and stranger. He is God of strangers, watching over each worthy wanderer. So I spoke, and pitiless of heart he answered, Stranger, you either are a fool or come from a far land to bid me fear or beware of the gods. We cyclopses fear not your aegis wielding Zeus, nor any god above, for we are mightier far than they. I would not show mercy to your men or you to shun the wrath of Zeus, nay, never unless my own heart bade. But come, tell me, where left you your good ship when you came hither? Was it near or at the land's far end? Nay, tell me, for I would know. So asked he, striving to trap the truth from me, but caught not my tired mind unaware. So thus with crafty words I spoke. The god who shakes the earth, Poseidon, broke my ship asunder, for he drove her upon the cliffs that lie near land and dashed her on the rocks. A tempest had blown us in from sea, and I and these my comrades here but barely escaped sheer death. So I replied. He, cruel-hearted, made no answer, but springing up, reached forth his hands and seized my comrades, two at once. He snatched up in his grasp and dashed them to earth like helpless puppies. Forth the brains flowed, moistening the ground. Then limb from limb he tore their bodies and made his meal, devouring them savagely as a lion bred among the mountains. Not of them he left uneaten, flesh or entrails or marrowy bones. And we cried out in lamentation and uplifted our hands to Zeus to see a deed so horrible. Numb terror laid hold on our hearts. And now the Cyclops, when he had filled that monstrous belly with flesh of men and followed this with draughts of unmixed milk, lay stretched full length upon the cavern floor among his flock. And now I formed this plan within my daring heart to venture nearer and to draw my keen sword from my thigh and thrust it deep in his breast, straight to the spot where lay his liver, feeling first to seek the place, and yet a thought withheld me, for we all, each man, must then have met sheer death, for never could our strength stir from that high door, the massive stone he set there. So lamenting, there we sat and waited the sacred dawn. And when the dawn came, rosy-fingered, 
Then once more he kindled fire and milked his flock of wondrous sheep in order due, setting her young by each. And now when he had labored busily and finished every task, he seized once more upon two men and made his morning meal. And after this, his breakfast done, he drove away his goodly flock, moving with ease the mighty doorstone thence, and then set it in place as lightly as a man would set the lid upon a quiver. And now I pondered how I best might find revenge. If but Athena would hear my prayer, and this plan seemed best to my mind at last. There lay close by the pens a mighty staff cut by the cyclops. All of wood it was, still green, for he had cut it to use when it had dried. It seemed, as we stood gazing, the great mast of some broad ship of twenty oars, laden with cargo, a black ship that sails the great gulf of the sea, so long and thick it seemed. So there I took my stand by it and cut a fathom's length away, and this I gave my men and bade them shape it. They made it smooth while I stood by and brought it to a point and charred it in glowing fire, and then I took it and hid it in the dung that lay in heaps about the cave. I bade them my company cast lots to see which of men of them would dare to join me, and lift that stake and bore it deep into his eye, when gentle slumber should come upon him. And the lot fell on the four I should have chosen, and I myself became the fifth to share the venture. And now came the Cyclops home at evening, herding his well-fleeced flocks. Straight away he drove into that cavern, one and all, his goodly flocks, nor left he any in the wide court without. He felt, perhaps, some sense of coming evil. Perhaps some god had warned him. Next, he set in place the massive doorstone, lifting it lightly. Then once again, he seized on two of my companions and made his evening meal. And now I stood before him and thus spoke, the while I held forth in my hands an ivy bowl filled with dark wine. Here, Cyclops, take this wine and drink after your feast of human flesh, and learn how good a drink we kept hidden within our ship. I brought it an offering to you, in hope you might have pity on my sorrows and welcome me home. But you, alas, in rage exceed all patience. Madman, how shall there ever come hereafter another stranger here to seek you from any land on earth, if you thus scorn all human laws? So said I, he took the wine and drank it. Vastly that sweet drink pleased him, and again he begged of me. In goodness give me yet more, I pray, and tell me now your name, and quickly. I will give you a gift to make your heart rejoice. So thrice I bore that glowing wine and gave it him, and thrice in folly he drained it off. Then when the wine had stolen round his wits, I spoke and said in honeyed words, O Cyclops, you ask my far-famed name, and this I now will tell you. Give me, therefore, the stranger's gift, as you have promised. My name is Noman. So I spoke, and he with cruel heart replied, Noman, of all his company, I shall eat last, and all the others I'll eat before him. This shall be my gift to you, my guest. So spoke he. Then down he sank, and on his back lay flat, his thick neck bent aside. 
and from his throat there poured forth wine and fragments of men's flesh. And now, deep under heaped coals, I thrust that stake till it grew hot, and stirred the courage of my men with speech, lest one of them should shrink with fear and fail my need. And now that stake of olive wood, green as it was, was ready to burst forth in flame, all glowing with fierce heat. I drew it forth from the fire, while round about me my men stood ready. Then, for surely some god had breathed into our hearts that sharpened olive stake and thrust it deep in his eye. The while above them I leaned upon its top and turned it as one who with an eight bores a great ship timber. Those below him twisted by tongs on either side, and still it ever turns unceasing. So holding that huge stake of wood deep in his eye, we kept it turning. Round that hot brand, forth poured the blood, and round it all his brows and lashes were singed off by the blast that came out of that burning eye. Its roots seethed in the fire, as when a smith dips a great axe or adds in water to temper it, and loud it hisses, for so steel gets its strength. Even so, his eye hissed round that olive stake and loud his cry and terrible, till the rocks echoed, and we fled away in fear. Then from the eye he wrenched away that stake, thick clotted with his own blood, and raging hurled it out of his hands. Then loud he shouted to all the cyclopses who dwelt round him in caves upon the windy heights. They heard his shout, and straggling gathered, one here, one there, from every side, and standing all about his cave, they asked what grieved him. What can ail you, O Polyphemus, that so loudly you cry out in the heavenly night and keep us sleepless? In some man, some mortal, driving off your flocks against your will? Or is some man now slaying you by force or cunning? And thus, in answer from his cave, spoke mighty Polyphemus. Friends, no man is slaying me by cunning, nor uses force at all. And they, with winged words, thus replied, Since no man now does you violence, while you are there alone, this illness sent by mighty Zeus, no man may shun in any way. But pray you now to your great father, Lord Poseidon. So said they, and then went their way. And in my heart I laughed to think how with that name and my shrewd plan I had deceived them. But the Cyclops, groaning in agony and anguish, went groping with his hands and lifted the great rock from the door, and there he sat athwart the doorway, stretching his hands to catch, if it might be, any who sought to pass the door among the sheep, for in his heart he hoped that I might prove so foolish as thus to venture. But I still sat planning how to bring this peril to a good end, and win us all, my men and me, escape. Full many the plan and trick I fashioned, striving for life itself, for great the peril and close at hand. And at the last, this, as I deemed, was one of them all the wisest plan. There in the cave were well-grown rams of thickest wool, fair beasts and great and dark of fleece. These silently I bound together with twisted willow withes, whereon the cyclops slept, that savage monster who knew no law nor right. I bound them by threes together, and the midmost bore under him a man. The others, one on each side, were to conceal and save my comrades, 
So there went a man to each three sheep, and I myself now seized upon a ram, the best of all that flock, and grasped his back from underneath and lay beneath his shaggy belly. There twisting my fingers deep within that wondrous fleece I hung, face upward with steadfast heart. And so, lamenting, we waited sacred dawn. And now, when earliest dawn came rosy-fingered, then forth the rams went to the pasture, but all the unmilked ewes went bleeding about their pens with swollen udders. Their lord, though torn by cruel pain, yet ere each ram passed, made him stand and felt along his back. He guessed not in his dull mind that there beneath those fleecy breasts were bound my men. Now to the door, last of them all, the great ram slowly came, weighed down with heavy fleece and with burden upon of me and my shrewd plans. Upon him, the mighty Polyphemus then laid searching hands and said, Dear ram, why do you cross the cave so slowly, last of the flock? Till now, you never lagged thus, but ever first of all sped forth with mighty strides to crop the soft bloom of the grass, and ever were first to reach the running waters, and first, when evening came, to long to turn back home. And yet you now come last of all, Surely you sorrow over your lord's lost eye. A villain has quenched its sight. He and his crew of wretched fellows mastering my wits with wine. This fellow Noman. Not yet, I say, has he escaped the death that waits him. Would but you could know my thought and had the power to speak in words and let me know where he is skulking from my wrath. For I should smite him down and dash his brains about the cave. Here, there, I on the ground. By such a deed, my heart might find some ease from all the evils that this worthless no man has brought upon me. So he spoke and sent the ram forth through the doorway. And now, when we were safe outside that cavern and its yard, I loosed my grip upon the great ram's fleece and then unbound my men in turn, setting them free. And then in haste, we drove that flock before us, sheep most rich and fat, most long of stride. And yet we often turned our heads to glance behind us ere we came safe to our ship. Welcome indeed we were to our dear comrades, snatched from death itself, and yet they wept, lamenting those we lost. But this I would not suffer, but forbade with lifted brows all lamentation, and bade them quickly bear aboard the into the ship those many sheep of so fine a fleece and sail away across the sea salt waves and they went then aboard and took their seats each in his place and smote with oars the whitening sea and now when yet a shout might reach the land i called to cyclops taunting him o cyclops you were not then to find that man a helpless weakling him whose men you ate there in your hollow cave with might and cruel strength for surely these evil deeds of yours are doomed to overtake you. O oh, mad fool who felt no shame, but must devour your guests in your own home. May Zeus and all the other gods send vengeance upon you for such deeds. So spoke I, and he in his heart grew angrier, yet and tearing off a hill's great summit, he hurled it, and it fell beyond our dark bowed ship. The sea surged high as that great rock crashed down. A wave came rolling back. 
a mighty billow out of the deep and swept our ship into toward the land. Swiftly, I grasped a great pole in my hands and thrust the ship from shore and bade my men, nodding my brows, fall to and pull their best upon the oars and flee out of that danger. And they all bent to their oars. But when we now were twice as far from shores as we had been before, once more I called unto the cyclops. But my men, with pleading words, came all about me and begged me stay. Why, like a madman, will you enrage this savage monster who made but now so great a cast? He drove our ship, then far at sea, back to the land. We thought that we were lost indeed there. Had he heard a man of us but stir or speak, he would have shattered all our heads and our ship's timbers too. So rugged a rock he would have cast, so strongly he sends it on its way. So spoke they, but did not move my lordly spirit. And once again, with angry heart, I called back, saying, If, O Cyclops, a mortal man shall ever ask you how it befell your eye was blinded, so hideously, then answer thus. It was Odysseus blinded you, taker of Troy, Laertes' son, who dwells in Ithaca. So spoke I, and with a groan he spoke and answered, Alas, for now are come upon me the ancient oracles. A prophet once dwelt here, a great man and good, and he foretold me everything that time should bring to pass, that I should lose my sight here at the hand of one Odysseus. But I ever watched for the coming of a man, tall, handsome, armed with wondrous strength. And now this little worthless fellow has robbed me of my eye by craft, first mastering me with wine. Yet now come hither, O, o Odysseus, come. For I would give my guest his gifts and would implore the far-famed God who shakes the shores to give you help upon your way. I am his son. He owns himself, my father. He, and he alone, can make me whole, if he so will, but this no other can do, no other of the gods, on high or mortal men who perish. So spoke he, and I answered thus, Would I could be as sure that I could strip you bare of soul and being, and send you to death's house, as I am sure of this, that none shall ever restore your eye, not even he who makes earth tremble. So I spoke. And he with hands upraised in prayer to starry heaven thus besought the Lord Poseidon. Hear me now, thou dark-haired God who makest earth tremble. If I be verily thy son, and thou wilt own thyself my father, grant that Odysseus, he who took the towers of Troy, come never home. Yet, should it be his fate to see his friends once more and come at last to his good house and native land, late may he come in evil fortune, with loss of all his men, and born within a stranger's ship, and meet in his own home affliction. So he spoke in prayer, and to his words the dark-haired god gave ear. Circe's Warnings Then mighty Circe spoke thus, and said, Now all these things are past and ended. Listen well to what I have to tell. May heaven help you to heed it. You will first come to the sirens, to those women who weave a magic spell that masters all men who hear their song. For he who turns them from his way in folly to hear the siren's song 
no more shall behold his wife and children coming to greet him, glad of heart that he is home again. They sit, these sirens, in a grassy meadow, and here they sing their clear, sweet song and weave their spell. And all about them lie heaps of gleaming bones and bodies shriveled with shreds of skin. Row swiftly and drive your ship till safely past. But first mold honeyed wax and stop your comrades' ears, that none of them may hear that song. Yet if you long with your own ears to hear it, bid them first bind your hand and foot and lash you upright in your swift ship, your back against the mast with ropes cast round you. So you may listen with delight and hear the siren song. Yet first command your men that if you beg them to set you free, that they must bind you in faster lashings. When your men have urged your ship past these, what road you next must take, I shall not tell you. Take counsel with your heart and choose. I will make both ways plain. On one great rocks or overhang the sea against them. Roll in and break the mighty waves of dark-eyed amphitrite. Thence no ship of man escapes. If once she turn her thither, there together forevermore the planks of ships and bodies of slain men go tossing at will of rolling waves and swept by tempests of dread fire. There rise beside the other way two crags, and one of these soars high to heaven with pointed peak. About the summit a cloud hangs over, dark and sullen, nor ever passes thence. Nor ever does the clear light of heaven touch that peak in summer or in harvest. No mortal man may climb it, nay, nor find him foothold, though he had a score of hands and feet. That rock rises so smooth, like polished stone on every side. Minmost the front of this great crag, and deep in shadow there lies a cave. Westward it looks, and toward the land of death, and thither you must, illustrious Odysseus, steer with your ship. Within this cave dwells Scylla, ever uttering her dreadful yelping cry, her voice shrill as a newborn's whelps. There dwells she, a monstrous shape of evil. No one can see that sight unshaken, nay, not through a god should face her. Twelve her hanging feet are, and six necks she stretches forth, on each a head hideous to see, and in each head teeth in three rows, close set and bristling, filled with black death. And there she sits, sunk to her middle in that cave, and stretches forth from that dread gulf her fearful heads and fishes, groping about the crag for sharks or dolphins, or what so greater beast her fortune may make her prey. For many such the deep-voiced Cenith Amphitrite has in her pastures. Not one seaman can boast his ship has passed her by without some hurt. From each dark ship she ever snatches, with each head one man away to death. And now, Odysseus, you shall see, close by, the second crag. Lower it lies, yet near the other. One could shoot a shaft across to it. Upon it there stands a fig tree, great and tall, and all in leaf. And under this, the dread Charybdis swallows in the dark sea water. 
Thrice each day she sends it up, and thrice again she sucks it down. And terrible that sight to see. I pray that you may not be there when she is sucking the water in. For no one then could save you from that evil. Nay, not he that shakes the earth. So turn your ship to Scylla's crag and drive her swiftly upon her way. Far better to lose six men from your ship than all should die together. So she spoke, and answering her, I said, Nay, goddess, tell but this, and truly, may not I find me out some way to shun this dire Carbidus and fight that other from my ship when she would make my men her prey? So spoke I, and thus at once the goddess answered, Rash you are ever, with a heart set upon war and deeds of anger. Can you not yield when this must be to the immortal gods? This monster is not a mortal, but a thing of living evil none may slay. Dread, fierce, unconquerable, no man may fight against. Courage here avails you nothing. This alone is best, to flee from her. What though you linger by her rock and arm you, I fear less than she once again stretch forth those fearful heads and snatch as many more. Nay, rather drive full speed upon your way, and now you reach the island of Thrinacia. Here are pastured all the sun god's cattle and his fat flocks. For seven herds of cattle graze here, seven flocks of goodly sheep, and there are fifty in every flock. They bear no young, nor do they ever die. If these you leave unharmed and fix your hearts upon the homeward way, you yet may come, though suffering sore perils, to Ithaca. But if you harm them, then naught can I foresee but ruin for you and ship and men. Nay, though yourself you yet escape, then late in evil plight you shall come home with loss of all your men. So said she, and straight away came the dawn, rose-fingered, and thence the goddess passed away up through the island. Then I turned back to the ship and bade my men embark and loose the cables. The Song of the Sirens Quickly they went aboard and took their seats, each man in his own place, and smote the whitened sea with oars. And now there came, behind our dark proud ship, a favoring wind to fill our sail, a welcome comrade sent by Circe, that fair-tressed goddess of dread power, who speaks with mortals. So we trimmed our good ship's tackle right, and then sat at our ease, while wind and helmsman held her course true. And now I said, sad-hearted to my men, unfitting it is, friends, that but one or two should hear the sacred prophecies of that dread goddess Circe. These I now shall tell you, for then either we die for knowing what shall fall, or we escape and shun the death and doom that wait us. This she first bids us, to shun the wondrous sirens with their sweet voices and their meadows abloom with flowers. For she bade that I alone should hear their song. So bind me fast in bods, a lash me upright against the mast, that hence I may not stir, and cast strong ropes about me too. If I entreat you and bid you set me free, then bind me yet tighter than before. And so I told them all she said. And ever our good ship sailed on swiftly, nearing the Siren's Island, for the wind blew fair and drove her on. 
And now the wind ceased suddenly. There came a calm without a breath. Some god laid all the ship to sleep. So now my men rose, furled the sail, and stowed it within the hollow ship. And sitting in order on the thwarts, they smote with polished oars the whitening sea. But I, with my keen blade, now cut a great round lump of wax and kneaded the fragments with my hands, till swiftly the wax was softened. With this, I stopped the ears of all my crew. In turn, they f then fast they bound me, hand and foot upright in my swift ship, my back against the mast with ropes cast round me. Then once again they sat and smote the forming sea with oars. And now, when we were but so far away as a man's cry may reach, and lightly went driving on, our ship's swift flight, as close to land she sped, escaped not the siren's sight, and they appraised at once their clear, sweet song. Come hither, O famed Odysseus, mighty glory of the Achaeans. Turn your ship but hither to the shore, and hearken the song we sing. For no man ever has steered his black ship hence till he has heard the honey-sweet delight of music from our lips. Then forth he went upon his way with joy and fuller wisdom. For we know all that the Argives and the Trojans endured on Troy's wide plains. We know all that befalls mankind on earth, the nourisher of all. So sang they, uttering their sweet song, my heart yearned to hear further, and I bade my men to lose me. And I frowned my bidding with my frows, but they bent busier to their oars, and two, your Eurocles and Perimides arose and bound me faster with double lashings. But at last, when we had passed them, and no more might hear the song those sirens sang and their sweet voices, then my men took quickly from their ears the wax, wherewith I stopped them, and they loosed the bonds that bound me. Scylla and Charybdis. And we now had left that isle behind. But soon I saw the smoke of flying spray and huge seas rolling, and I heard the boom of breakers. From the hands of my affrighted men, the oars fell and trailed idle, roaring through the running sea beside us. Quickly the ship lost way and stopped, for now my men no longer toiled, with hands upon the tapered oars. Now swiftly I passed through all the ship and paused by each in passing, cheering him with gentle words. We are not, friends, untried in danger. This new peril that lies before us is no greater than when the Cyclops caught and held us fast in his hollow cave. Yet thence we found escape, and through my valor and wit and shrewdness, and I think that we shall live to tell the tale of this day too. But rouse you now, do as I bid you. Take your seats upon the thwarts and drive your oars deep in the sea whose billows roll so steep against us. We shall see if Zeus grant us to escape out of this place of death. And you, helmsman, I charge you, fix my words fast in your heart. For you alone hold in your hand the helm that guides our hollow ship. Steer boldly forth out of these smoking seas, and head her straight for yon crag. And take good heed, lest she swing wide and sweep us all into sore peril. So I spoke, and they obeyed my order quickly. And yet I did not speak of Scylla, that monster none may face in fear, 
lest they from terror drop their oars and hide within the hold. Slight heed I gave to Circe's hard command I should not arm me. I put on my glorious armor, and I grasped my two spears in hand, and took my station on the decked prow, for there I thought I first should see appear this Scylla that dwelt within the rock, to bring my men destruction. And yet nowhere could I behold her, and my eyes wearied with wandering up and down that shadowy wall of stone. So onward, into that strait we sailed lamenting, on one side Scylla, on the other, dreadful Charybdis. Terribly she swallowed down the salt seawater, then vomited it forth till all was tossed and whirling like a cauldron above a raging fire. And spray flew high and fell upon the tops of the tall crags. But when once more she sucked the sea salt down, we saw the world's wild depths lay bare, the waters roared loud about the rocks. Far down we saw the bottom of the deep blackened with sand. Pale terror then laid hold on us, and we saw the monster and feared death near. And on that instant, Scylla reached forth and snatched my men out of my hollow ship, six men, my best in strength and courage. Lo, even as I looked along the ship to seek them there, there I saw, above me, their hands and feet as up she swung them aloft in air. And loud they cried, calling, for the last time, my name, in agony of heart. And even as one who fishes from a rock that juts far out to sea, cast down his bait to lure small fish and tosses into the deep of a bit horn. From kine of his own field, I, even as he, if then he takes a fish, flings it aloft out of the sea, all quivering. Even so, she swung them all quivering up to her high crag. There she devoured them, one and all, before her doorway while they shrieked and still stretched out their hands to me in dying agony. That sight was saddest of all sights my eyes had ever seen. While through sore trials I wandered the sea's ways, so now we had escaped the clashing rocks and Scylla and the dread Charybdis.